Well, our desire tonight is to look at something that's actually quite amazing. It's a Bible word that we sure don't use in everyday conversation. And the word is propitiation. And that's a $10 word. It's found in the book of 1 John chapter 2. And I'm going to give you a moment there. I'd like to invite you to uh, turn to 1 John chapter 2. Give you a moment to find that. Shortly before Revelation. All right, chapter 2 of 1 John. If you have that, I'd invite you to stand. And we're going to read verses 1 and 2. So I'll not keep you long on your feet. But out of respect for God's word, let's, let's stand. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And then we'll have a word of prayer. Let's begin. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What an amazing little passage of scripture. So our key word tonight is propitiation. And we're going to learn all what that means. You'll be experts in the subject by the time church is over. Let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves before you. And we realize that in us, uh, there's... There's nothing really. It's only the presence of Jesus that makes the life worthwhile. How we thank you for your love for us. Great love wherewith you loved us. That you sent your only begotten son, Jesus, God in the flesh, to die for our sins on the cross. Our heavenly father, help, help us tonight. Teach us. Increase us in faith and patience and love and obedience and worship. Help our hearts to be very sensitive to take in the word of God tonight. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, please accept our love as we bow before you. Have thine own way now during the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Please be seated. I remember reading some years ago about a, a man who uh, became a Christian and, uh, as I understand it, was um, on a Christian cause and he was arrested uh, as they were taking him into trial. Someone yelled from the crowd, I'm praying for, for justice, brother. And he turned to him and said, don't, don't pray for justice, pray for mercy. There's a difference, isn't there? We get what we deserve, that would be justice. Well, we don't get what we deserve, that's mercy. Mercy. Mercy is a wonderful word, isn't it? It, it uh, it's like mom and apple pie. The word mercy, to be merciful, is uh, a great quality. Something that would be nice if every believer, and in fact every human everywhere around the world, showed more mercy. There'd be no more wars, right? What would happen to all of the the vicious cycle of greed and so on? That would that would cease. I think our, our weapons of rebellion and sin, we would, we would beat our swords into plowshares. We'd have a wonderful world if uh, everyone would just show mercy. And um, I was reminded about, uh, in, in prep, preparing this message, uh, a very notable entertainer. He's dead now. He died just a few years ago. His name is Michael Jackson. And I thought that he might make an interesting example because everyone knows Michael Jackson. Whether you like him or not, everyone seems to have heard of Michael Jackson. And so um, a few years before he died, he was embroiled in a couple of very serious court battles. I don't have to go into details if you know anything about his life, but uh, the accusations against him were very hot and heavy. And uh, I remember following this thing through and, you know, reading the accounts and people speculating, people that were close to him speculated that if he gets convicted, he could spend 20 years in prison and that he would probably kill himself. So there was a lot of, of that going on. Um, 
So I got thinking about this. There he is in court. And, you know, he's got his defense attorneys and the prosecution against him. And the courtroom is packed and so on. I was thinking about this. I guess at the time he was uh, 46, 47 years of age, something like that. And um, boy, he wasn't looking at a very uh, happy prospect before him. His whole image had been uh, somewhat shattered. Now, you know, I'm not here to pass any judgment on Michael Jackson. Not at all. That's between him and God. I don't know about um, actual guilt. I just read about things. I never met the man personally. He's dead now, and um, God is his judge. But um, think about this. Uh, if, if they found him guilty, which apparently they didn't in this particular one, they resolved things. I don't know how they did all of that, but they resolved things, and they, they said he's not guilty. But supposing they had found him guilty and they sent him off to prison for 20 years, that would be justice. That would be divine, not so much divine, that would be legal justice meted out. When someone breaks the law, they're supposed to pay a penalty, right? And uh, those that break the law horrendously, um, many of us want to see them pay that penalty. The, the, the more vicious the crime, the more we think, yeah, they'd better spend the rest of their life in the slammer or something for what they did. But supposing this, supposing that they found Michael Jackson guilty and there was sobbing and cheering and all of that mixed emotion in the courtroom and yay around the country, and then the judge he stood up and he said, Mr. Jackson, you've been found guilty, guilty of sin. And the penalty is going to be 15 years in federal prison. But then the judge said, I'm going to take your place and I'm going to go to prison for you. Has that ever happened in the courts of, of, of law? I, I don't know. Nothing like that I've ever read. You say, wow, that would never happen. Well, and you may be right. Maybe on earth it would never happen. But you see, that would be propitiation. Now that's an interesting thought. We're talking tonight about God's dealings with us human beings. And we have here a word that's, again, not familiar to us. We don't use it every day, only once in a while, you know, when we're at church. But it's the word propitiation. What does that word mean? That word, way back thousands of years ago, in classic pagan use, the word propitiation was used of averting the wrath of the gods. It seemed that, you know, back then in ancient Rome and Greece and so on, they always thought the gods were upset. Gods were always angry. Did you know that people today have a similar thought about God? They think he's an old man on a throne with a big long stick, just waiting for you to step out of line and whack, he's going to hit you. Some people think that about God. And they call God names and they say he's not fair and if there really was a God, would he allow this? And how dare God allow that? And blah, blah, blah. We've heard it all. They've been doing that for thousands of years, apparently. So the old pagans, they all feared their gods. And they had all kinds of gods that they worshipped. And so um, renewed favor with these uh, gods was won uh, for the offender by offering a gift of sacrifice to atone for their sins. And it was often held that the gods became angry with their worshippers and that they had to be appeased by special or choice offerings. And so, for instance, a farmer has a failed crop. That was understood to be as a result of the anger of their chosen God. And it became necessary to appease that God by certain actions. There was also a necessity to offer continuously to the gods to try and keep in their favor. You know, this even went one step further. That family relatives that died... They figured their spirits were still 
you know, around there somewhere. And so what they would do in Rome, anyhow, in the roads, the main roads that would enter into town, is that's where they would plant the bodies of their departed loved ones. And down the main road on the right and on the left, you'd see all these tombs. And every day, family members would go out there and put a little bit of fruit or a little bit of produce or something, the crops of the field or something, to try and appease their uh, departed loved ones so that they don't get upset and come and make life miserable for them. They were always living in this state of fear. If you've ever read the book of Jonah, Jonah runs away from God, pays his money, gets into a ship that's going to Tarshish, which is something like 2,500 miles away across the Mediterranean from Jerusalem, just about to the furthest point. It's around where Spain just about touches North Africa. Like that far away. That's where Tarshish was. And so he gets in there. You can run from God, but you can't hide. He knows where to find you. And so God sent a big storm out at sea. And the sailors, they were afraid. And they did everything they could and started praying to their individual gods. You know, maybe one god's name, Hank. You know, oh, Hank, you know, help us. You know, what, what do you want us to do? And all these different mariners had different gods that they cried out to. And finally, when the uh, shipmaster finds Jonah asleep, he says, why sleepest thou? You know, pray to thy God. Good, uh, good counsel, too, for a lot of Christians. Sleep in. We need to get up and pray to God. And so anyhow, he gets up and he explains to the sailors that he's running from the Almighty God who created heaven and earth. And this they really feared. And so he says, just throw me overboard and that'll appease God. Of course, Jonah had another idea. He just wanted to die. He did not want to do what God asked him to do. And so the sailors tried even harder to row the, row, row the boat and they couldn't do it. The storm was that bad. And so reluctantly, they took Jonah and they threw him overboard. And all of a sudden, a big raging sea just lay right down, calm as glass. And they feared greatly. And they started worshiping the one true God. Meanwhile, God had another plan for Jonah. But we're not going to go into that. Just want to point out that these sailors all had their different gods that they cried out to and they prayed to. They were pagan gods. Listen, there's only one God. There's only one creator of heaven and earth. Everything else is just like a wannabe. And they're made of stone and they're made of precious metals and so on. But they got no, they got no life in them. Ears, but they can't hear. Eyes, but they can't see. And we've got thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people right here in Surrey that are paying homage to pagan gods. That's why Surrey needs the Lord. Surrey has uh, needed the Lord, so God started Grace Baptist Church. We've got a strong soul-winning program into Surrey and around the world, too. And so please keep praying for our soul-winning program. Well, um... In 1 John chapter 2, we read, My little children, these things write I unto you. Here's the Apostle John writing to the, the Christians, particularly the, the younger Christians. That's why he calls them my little children. He says, If any man sin, we have an advocate. What is an advocate? What's another word for an advocate? Lawyer. lawyer. Yeah, we have a lawyer. Up in the courts of heaven, when we sin, when we break God's commandments, what happens? Well, the, the, the accuser, the prosecution, we could call him, that's the devil, brings legitimate accusations against us to God the Father. The devil is in his full right to stand up and look, point down on earth to, you know, Joe Blow, Christian there, and say to uh, the Heavenly Father, look, your son has sinned. Look what he did. That's a sin, and there's an accusation brought against them. A legitimate accusation. Now, what happens next is we have an advocate. That's what it says here in 1 John 2.1. We have an advocate with the Father. Who is he? Who is this advocate? Jesus Christ, the righteous. The righteous, he has never, ever sinned. Imagine that. I can't imagine what my life would be like if it was absolutely as sinless, I mean, if I had never sinned. I can't imagine that. Because I, like you, I was born in the stuff. We've all been 
chiseled out of the same rock. There is sin in us. We sin by, uh, uh, by, by choice. Uh, we sin with the mind. We sin with the mouth, with the hand, with the foot. Sin is part of our lives. And sin has a dreadful stench in the courts of heaven. Now we kind of live in the stuff down here on earth. And we're not so much aware of the stench. But it has a horrible stench. Sin does. Now in Christ, this is washed away. But yet after we become Christian, we can still mess with sin. And that's not right. Someone once said that sin is bad in the unsaved, but it's even worse in the Christian. They know better and they still sin. But we've got an advocate. And so our advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, stands up in the court of heaven and basically says, Father, it's true. Your son, Joe Blow, on earth, did commit that sin. But Heavenly Father, I died for that sin 2,000 years ago on the cross of Calvary. I shed my blood. I paid for that sin. That sin has been paid for. The Father basically says, all right, case closed. That part of it is closed. But then the Holy Spirit has the job to come and to tell you, you've sinned and you need to get right with God. And that's why we have a conscience and thank the Lord for your conscience. If you can sin and not feel it, you are in trouble, my friend. If you could take a hot knife and just cut right through your arm and not even feel it, you need help. You, need, you have some serious problems. You've got a nervous system to tell you when there's a problem in some part of the body. And people who lose all feeling, say, in their feet or their hand, they could catch their finger in a car door and not even know it. That's pretty sad. If you sin and you're aware of it, praise the Lord. That's what your conscience is there for. And the Holy Spirit is there to tell you, you've sinned, you need to get right with God. Now we've got a choice. Now we can either agree with the Holy Spirit and move toward God and confess our sin, or we can stiffen up, you know, stiffen our neck and harden our heart and turn the other way and say, no, he started it. <laughs> she started it. If anyone's to blame, it's her, it's him. What I did was minor compared to what they did. And we can stubbornly turn the other way. Now, you know, it, it may be true. They may have started it. That's very true. But we didn't have to make it worse. Oh yeah, he hit me. Ah, uh, okay, all right. But then what? You hit him back? Yeah. <laughs> you see? Now there's two sinners, two problems. And so we come to verse 2, and something interesting I want you to notice, at the end of verse 1, what have you got? What's at the end of verse 1? Nope, not righteous. What's at the end of verse 1? Two little dots. Do you see it? Two little dots. Now, who would ever put two little dots there at the end of a verse? What are those two little dots? What are they called? A colon, yeah. And a colon, what a colon is, is it sets up an equation. The left hand and the right hand side of the equation. We do it with the clock all the time. We say it's 10.05. And the way we write it is 1.0. That's the 10. That's the number of hours. And then we put in these two dots. And then we have the minutes, 05. It's 10.05. And the idea here is that they're both uh, equal as far as time. Ten hours, that's time. Five minutes, that's time. But the right-hand side, after the colon, helps explain in further detail the left-hand side. So it's not just 10. It's 10.05. Does that make sense? So that's what the colon is there for. That's how they use it in grammar. And so here at the end of verse 1, we're told that we've got an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, colon, and he is the propitiation for our sins. See that? So we have now a further explanation of who Jesus is. He's more than just an advocate. He is a propitiation. And this whole idea of propitiation, uh, listen, I'll give you the, the quick version. The quick version is means to make happy, to satisfy, 
to please. That's the whole idea of propitiation. You know, I thank the Lord for the King James Bible because it gives us the proper word. That is the proper word. It's a translation from the, from the Greek word, and this is the proper English word here. The New International Version says our atoning sacrifice, and although those are good words, that's not what the proper word is. The good news for modern Sam, man says, for modern Sam, no, for modern man says the means by which our sins are forgiven, and those are good words, but that's not the proper translation of the Greek word here. The revised standard version, or the reversed standard version, whatever you want, says the expiation for our sins. And uh, expiation is a good word, but it's not the proper word. The proper word here is propitiation. And it means to render favorable. It means to please or appease. We would say it means to lead to a happy ending. A happy ending. And that's exactly what we've got here. Propitiation is something that renders favorable. It leads to a happy ending. Jesus Christ is not only our advocate, our defense lawyer in heaven. He's also our propitiation. He is the one that leads to a, a happy ending. He's the one that can make it right. Like the, the judge who stood up and, in our little fabricated story and said, Mr. Jackson, the court has found you guilty of gross crimes and you'll be sentenced to 15 years, 20 years in federal prison. Then he takes off his regal robes and says, but I am going to go there and I'm going to pay that for you. I'm going to pay the debt. I'm going to go to prison on your behalf. I'm going to do this for you and I'm going to make it right. The debt you owe, I will pay. That's propitiation. Isn't that amazing? That's absolutely amazing. Now, I'm sure something like that has never happened in the courts on earth where the judge has uh, gone to such lengths. But it's happened in the courts of heaven. Because you see, this is the only way. You and I, we can't pay for our sin. We send someone off to prison for 10 years and we say, okay, they've paid their debt to society. And on the, the first day of, the, uh, of the, the 11th year or whatever it is, then uh, papers are signed, they're given back their street clothes and they're, they're let out of prison. They've paid their debt to society. Being in jail, being in prison is not a, a good thing. Uh, unless, of course, you're arrested for being a Christian. If ever they outlaw Christianity, let's all go to jail. If ever they say it's illegal to share the gospel with someone, if ever they say you may not go to church, you may not sing the praises, you may not own a Bible and read it, hey, get your courts ready, get your jails and your prisons ready, here we come. Let's not be afraid. Our Lord Jesus was arrested. Hmm? The Apostle Paul did nothing wrong, and yet with, on trumped-up charges, he was, in, he was in jail a few times in his life. Yeah. But otherwise, to go to jail for your own wickedness, there's nothing, nothing there to be too, too proud about. Jesus Christ is not only our advocate, he's also our propitiation. He is our happy ending of our sin problem. Because that's what we have, folks. Did you know that it only takes one sin to keep anyone out of heaven? Did you know that? How many sins did Adam commit that day when he, he sinned? How many? Five? Ten? How many? One. How many people did he murder that one time? Huh? That was murder, wasn't it? Isn't that what he did? He pulled out his gun and he shot Eve and killed her? Isn't that why God condemned him and, and all... Uh, you know, humanity was plunged into sin and depravity because Adam was a murderer. No. What Bible are, am I reading? No, that's not what the real Bible says. The Bible says that he took some forbidden fruit and took at least one bite of it. He disobeyed God. Someone says he had a little fruit before dinner or something, but he, he took what was not his. Every one of us have done that. Every single one of us here have taken things without permission. If we were to compare our lives against the Ten Commandments, how would we fare? Not so good. Not so good. Because we've said things that have been wicked. 
We've entertained thoughts that have been horrible. We've done things with the body and put things in the body that it's a crime against God. Our, Our sin, we can't deny it. We have a sin problem. And it only takes one sin to shut us down. You know, I'm a a little bit of of, a, of an advocate for old older technology. I, I'm not into the the real latest cutting edge technology. I like the old cars that you could lift the hood and fix it. You can't lift the hood. Well, no, you can lift the hood, but in the new modern cars, but that's all you can do. You know, you you pop the thing and you lift it and you stand there and you look at it. That's it. You know, it takes 14 technicians and three computers and, you know, and a whole big team of experts to be able to fix the modern cars these days. I like the old cars. The old cars had a a thing called a carburetor. And I think they called it a carburetor because it went on a car. Does that make sense? So anyhow, they had this carburetor and the carburetor would regulate the mixture of gas and air and would allow it to go down into the cylinders where it was compressed and then, you know, fired with the, the, the plug there, the spark plug. That's good old technology. I like those, those engines. Yeah. Anyhow, um, the carburetors had these little jets in them, and they just had the tiniest little openings. I mean, like small, like a like tiny little pinhole opening, and that's where the gas would go through. Well, guess how much dirt it would take to plug one of those openings? One grain, one grain of dirt will plug that opening. And all of a sudden, no gas to the engine. That's when you pull off to the side of the road. Play with the radio all you want. Make your wipers sing and dance. You're not going anywhere. One grain of dirt. You know how big a clot you have to have to have a, uh, a stroke? You know what a blood clot is, right? Or some little piece of some junk that who knows where it came from comes loose and goes up. The blood vessels get smaller. Finally get so small that this little thing can't get through. And you're upright one moment and you're flat horizontal the next. You just had a stroke. Kidney stones! There's another hot topic. You get these little doodads. And they uh, come out and they float along until, you know, the opening, the urinary tract opening, whether it gets so small and pop, and now you've got pain, like you think you're having 10 babies all at once or something. You've got so much pain. Kidney stones, same thing. One sin is all it takes. One sin. Don't ever think, you know, as a, a, a Christian that, uh, oh boy, you know, if ever I had to uh, maintain my own salvation, I think I could do a pretty good job. You couldn't. If you had to maintain your own salvation, you couldn't. Your first wrong thought, huh? two seconds after you wake up in the morning, your first misstep, th- that's it. Game over. That all just goes to make the meaning of propitiation that much sweeter. That Jesus died for all of our sins. Think of it. 2,000 years ago, how many of your sins were yet in the future? How many? Half of them? 2,000 years ago. How many of your sins were still future? 90% of them? All of them. Jesus died for how many of your sins? All of them. All of them. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that wonderful news? Don't you love the Lord tonight? My, oh my, what a Savior. He's not only an advocate, he's our propitiation. He brings us to a happy ending with God. It's it's all of God, this work of salvation. It's not God plus my good works. It's all of God. Hallelujah, what a Savior he is. In the courts of heaven before Almighty God, the sinner stands guilty. In John 3.19, you don't have to turn there, Jesus said, and this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Now there's a sad sentence of guilt upon the sinner 
And that sentence is death and misery and wrath of God in a pit of hell. When we, as sinners, confess our sin and guilt before Almighty God and say yes to the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus himself becomes our advocate, our defense lawyer, and Jesus himself deals with our sins by becoming our propitiation. He himself is our happy ending. If it wasn't for Jesus, we're not going anywhere near heaven. Hallelujah. In Romans 3.25 it says, Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. A lot of words in that verse. A simple bottom line is, he is our propitiation. He's solved all of the difficulty. He's paid all of the price. He's brought us to a happy conclusion, a happy ending. Now just turn over a page, would you please? Chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4. And please look at verse 10. <clears throat> Read it out loud with me, please. Verse 10. Herein is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Oh, wow. We who are saved, who are born again, we who have received Christ into our hearts by faith, we who have been birthed into the kingdom of God, we are no longer under the condemnation of almighty law and justice. It was Philip Bliss who wrote, Free from the law, O happy condition, Jesus hath bled and there is remission. Cursed by the law and bruised by the fall, grace hath redeemed us once for all. Hallelujah. For the propitiation. Jesus is our propitiation. The happy ending of our once sad story. A couple of things to note. Number one. This propitiation is available to all. It's not available only to a select few. That's Calvinism. Calvinism is not biblical, folks. People learn Calvinism not by reading the Bible. They learn Calvinism by talking to Calvinists. That's how they learn Calvinism. Propitiation is available for all the lost. Say, how do you know? Turn back to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 2, and he is the propitiation for our sins. Look at this now. And not for ours only. Now John is writing this and he's saying he's a propitiation for our sins. Those are the, the saved people, the Christian men and women who've been born again. The family of God here. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the, what's that? Whole world. The whole world. <clears throat> when Jesus died on the cross, he died for the whole world. For God so loved the world, the whole world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. That means to die and go to hell, but have everlasting life. It's a free gift. You couldn't light enough candles to get to heaven. You couldn't thumb enough beads through your fingers to get to heaven. You couldn't be baptized enough to get to heaven. None of those things can save anyhow. They can't save. You can watch all of the, the video workouts you want and still not lose any weight. Right? Sit down in a nice comfortable living room chair. Have a nice slurpee with a straw. By the way, plastic straws are being outlawed. I think uh, this week, isn't it? It was in the news. One-use plastic straws are now federally banned. They're going to be against the law. You'll be a criminal if you own one. <clears throat> so, fear and quake. Anyhow, what are we going to do without plastic straws? Don't worry. They'll think of something. They already have the answer. Imagine sitting in the comfort of your living room with a nice big ice-cold freezy or slurpee or something, and you're watching all these video workouts, and you're watching them sweat, sweating to the oldies. And they're pumping the iron and they're on the machines and you're sitting there watching all this. And then you go weigh yourself. Oh, it's still not working. You see, it's not going to do you any good. Baptism will never save you. Oh, I want to be baptized. It's not going to get you to heaven. That's for something else. 
If you're saved, you need to be baptized. That's for something else. But that's not going to get you to heaven. One way and only one. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. By the way, that means no woman too. He used a generic word there, mankind. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. It's only through Jesus. You can't go around Jesus. You can't say, oh, you're a nice savior, but I think I got this one. Not going to work. There's, there's no other way. Then what if I just refuse to believe in Jesus? That's your poor luck. <laughs> you poor guy. You die and end up in hell. Well, the propitiation is for our sins, but it's for the sins of the whole world. Problem with Calvinism, of course, is that it usually ends in no evangelism. Churches that are strongly Calvinistic don't support missions. They don't have soul winning. They don't try to reach out to the, the lost. Now, there actually are some Calvinists that do believe in evangelism, but they're, they're another breed. Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, and whosoever will may come. I remember him being in Bible college, and I remember having a guest speaker in there, and he touched on the topic of Calvinism, and they've got certain doctrines, five main doctrines actually. One of them is a limited atonement, that Jesus only shed his blood just for the elect and for no one else. Sorry if you're not elect, sorry, you know, that's your tough luck, but it's, Jesus' blood is only for the elect. And so he was addressing this very briefly in one of his messages, the guest speaker, and he said, uh, um, limited atonement? Uh, someone asked me if I believe in a limited atonement. I told him I sure do. It's limited to Calvary. And whosoever will may come. I thought that was a nice way to explain it. You won't find salvation outside of the cross of Calvary. Calvary is that place outside the city of Jerusalem where they nailed our Savior on the cross. The cross of Calvary. There's limited atonement, limited to Calvary, and whosoever will may come. So I never forgot that, and I thought that was good. In Revelation 22, it says, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. If anyone gets to hell, it's not going to be because they didn't have an opportunity. Their sin certainly got them to hell, but their rejection of the Savior is what did it. Imagine being in a burning building, you're about to die, and all of a sudden, a fireman shows up. I mean, you're up on a third or fourth or fifth window height, I mean, the, the floor, and a ladder plop up against your window, and there's a fireman saying, come, come, I'm here to save you. Uh, thank you, but no thank you. I've, I'm going to trust in my, I'm going to do this one myself. And the fireman watches you as you wet a towel, in the sink, and you put this towel, wet towel, over your head, thinking, this will save me. That's not going to save you. Not going to save you at all. Big burning building like that, you're going to be engulfed. You're, you're a goner. Jesus is the only way. And whosoever will may come. It's like Jesus puts that ladder up to your window and says, come, come, come. And now we've got a decision to make. Should I go with Jesus or should I stay here? Should I wait for maybe some other means? And that's what some people actually do. I know of people that say, well, I'm going to die first and see what, what happens. Oh, that's a mistake. That's a mistake. So point number one, the propitiation is available for all, for whosoever will. Number two is where does this propitiation take place? It takes place in one place only, and that's the cross. In Romans 3.25, as I mentioned, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. 1 Peter 2.24, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. That's another word for the cross. That we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye are healed. You see, there it is. It's the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's the amazing thing. The advocate has become the propitiation. The advocate. Just like the judge laying aside his regal robes and saying, Mr. Jackson, I'm going to go to prison for you. 
<gasps> What's this? Here is God Almighty. You deserve hell. You deserve to burn forever. I'm going to suffer it for you. I'm going to pay what you owe. I'm going to pay a debt you cannot pay. Now some of us have debts. If I said everyone who owes $1,000 or more on credit card or you owe it to Aunt Matilda or whatever, you've got a debt of $1,000 or more, please stand. Many of us would stand. All right, those that have a debt, say, of 5000 or more, please stand. Some would sit down, maybe. Others would be still standing. How about a debt of above 10000 A few more would sit down. You know that the average Canadian owes something like $30,000 in debts? That's not mortgage. That's credit cards and things. The average Canadian, you know that? That's a lot of money. That's a lot of debt. And bankruptcies are on the rise, folks. And here our Savior offers to pay our debts. The offer is there to whosoever will. And I read a story, happened many, many years ago. A very wealthy man tried an experiment, I think it was in Chicago. And he put an advertisement in the newspaper. Now this may be going back like a hundred years. I forget, so many years since I've read this story. And he advertised in the newspaper. I will pay your debts, all of them, on such and such a date, at such and such an hour, if you come to see me in my hotel suite, and he gave the address. And he put that out in the newspaper. Guess how many people showed up? Actually, one man did show up. He saw it, and he couldn't believe it. But he thought, what have I got to lose? And he showed up and knocked on the door. The wealthy man opened the door and looked to the left and the right and said, where are the others? Oh, well, just me. All right, come on in. He went in, he got his debts paid. Whosoever will. Hmm? Whosoever will. By faith, by faith. You mean all I've got to do is receive it? That's what you've got to do. You've got to repent of those nasty sins. Tell the Lord you're sorry. It's, it's your sin that nailed him to the cross. You've got to repent. There needs to be repentance. There needs to be a little sorrow. There needs to be a turning away from sin. I don't want to have anything more to do with sin. Sin has wrecked me. Lord Jesus, I want you in control. I've been in control long enough. I'm in a mess of things. I'm on my way to hell. He's not only our advocate. He's also our propitiation. He can make all things right. He's the only one who can. He can satisfy all the demands of divine justice. Hallelujah, what a savior. Listen, it's not the Catholic mass where the propitiation takes place. They re-crucify. Re what the mass is all about is they re-crucify Jesus over and over and over. That's why they, they still got him on a cross. He's still on the cross in the Catholic churches. It's not trying to keep the Ten Commandments. You never could. You never will. Propitiation takes place on the cross of Jesus Christ. And he's not on the cross anymore, by the way. He's risen. Amen? Amen. Number three. Who performs the propitiation? Well, in the pagan world, the gods were always upset. And the worshiper had to, pro to provide the propitiation. The worshiper had to, to do all of that stuff. But... The difference with the one true God is he provided the propitiation. You see, that's what marks out Bible Christianity from other religions. Other religions tell you you've got to work. You've got to do this. You've got to climb these stairs. You've got to walk over broken glass. You've got to crawl over hot coals. You've got to light these candles. You've got to say endless Hail Marys. You've got to do this, that, and the other thing. And you've got to keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. And then maybe you'll get to heaven. That's the religion of works. And you go to any of the, the world religions, maybe with the exception of Buddhism, they don't even believe in God. They got no room for God in their theology. They just think that everything's just one big, you know, massive circle that just keeps grinding on and on and you die and come back as another life form. That's a pretty weird kind of religion. But most other religions have some kind of concept of Almighty God and a heaven. And you ask them, if you were to ask a... Uh, a Muslim, how do, I, how do I get to heaven? 
Well, if your good works outweigh your bad works, then Allah will receive you. If you were to go to a, uh, an Orthodox Jew, how do I get to heaven? Well, if your good works outweigh your bad works, you'll, you'll get to heaven. That's the bottom line. It's works, works, works. Whereas the Bible teaches us that God came to earth. His name was Jesus. And he died on the cross, shedding his blood, providing a propitiation that whosoever will may come. Titus 3.5 says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. It's not of us. It's him. It's God who makes the propitiation. Not us. Why? So that it's not of works. That's why. It has nothing to do with works we have done. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace are ye saved through faith. And that, even the faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. When you're ready to be saved, God will give you the necessary faith. It's all of God, isn't it? You just need to be willing. You need to choose God. Number four, the propitiation needs to be seen in you and me who are saved. That same propitiation needs to be seen by others. You say, how is that possible? You see, if he died for all, yet there are many wicked still, how do we know if we're saved or not? How can I know if I'm saved, if I'm born again into God's family, and if I died, I'll be in heaven. I don't want to roll a dice on this. I don't want some big roulette wheel and find out if I go or I don't go. I mean, I want to know. Can I know? Yes, you can know. John says in chapter 5, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have everlasting life, eternal life. Now, you're in 1 John chapter 2 still? I want you to see this. This is important. You'll know that you've got eternal life. You'll know you're going to heaven because there's changes in your life. This whole book of 1 John gives us this. Look at verse 3. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. What does that mean? It means you've got a new ability inside you to obey God. If you're genuinely saved, you'll have a new ability to obey God. Now, whether you obey or not, that's still up to you, but you've got a new ability. And usually most saved people will start exercising that ability. They'll start doing what's right. They'll start going to church. They'll start reading their Bible. When they see something in the Bible here, it says, man, that's the will of God for my life. They'll start to conform to that. So we keep his commandments. Look at verse 4. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a, what's that word? Liar. We used to say back in the 60s, liar, liar, pants on fire. Hanging on a telephone wire. One day when I get to heaven, I want to find out who came up with that. He that saith, I know him, hey, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, and does not do what God says to do, that man is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Wow, that's pretty black and white, isn't it? So, a liar, truth not in him. Look at verse 5. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. So if we keep his word, the Bible, the scriptures, if we keep it, if we obey it, then his love gets perfected within us. The love of God Almighty. That's not something we're born with. That's something that we can learn as we draw close to God. His wonderful love in us. And hereby we know that we are in him. And finally, verse 6. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk even as he, that's Jesus, walked. So if we say we abide in him, then our walk ought to show it. This is how the unsaved world sees Jesus, is the changes in us. And this is also how we know that we're saved. I've used this illustration before, I'll use it again. We come into the room and there's 
there's a body laying on the floor. <gasps> we say, is he alive? Is he dead? Someone says, I don't know. I'll go find out. Maybe one of the nurses here tonight said, I know how to do it. And they put their fingers there on, on the neck at that big vein. And they're feeling for a pulse. They're feeling for a pulse. Oh, whew, there it is. Okay, oh yeah, he's got a pulse. He's still alive. Oh, no pulse. He must be dead. Oh, not necessarily. His heart can be beating ever so softly that you can't detect a pulse. There's different ways to detect if the man is alive or dead. They say take a little mirror, put it up to his nostrils, see if there's steam on the mirror. He's breathing, he's alive. You know, if they breathe, they're alive. You know that, right? Yeah, that's a quick test of life. There are several tests of life. And that's what you want to do spiritually. I asked the Lord Jesus to forgive my sins and come into my heart on April the 6th, 1975. That's a long time ago. How do I know it happened? How do I know that I'm going to heaven? It's because of the evidences of spiritual life. That's how. The love of God that I see coming through me. The desires I have for more and more of godliness and holiness. The changes in my life. The, the, the leaving off of the ways of the world and sin and the looking forward more to heaven. These are all evidences of spiritual life. That's how we know that we're saved. You can be saved and know it. Isn't that good news? Well, you know, if I were the devil, what I would try and do is get you confused. Oh, no, you can't know for sure you're saved. You better pray that sinner's prayer again. Oh, no, you didn't do it right. Do it again, buddy. No, no, God didn't hear you. You weren't loud enough. Get down on your knees. Do it again. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, I'd keep Christians in confusion. And God knew this. God knew the devil would do this. And so he wrote 1 John and gave us the evidences of new life. Praise the Lord. Well, if Michael Jackson ever was found guilty, and if he were truly repentant, and if the judge was really in a loving mood, maybe the judge would pay his fine for him. Probably not. But wouldn't that be a happy ending for Michael Jackson? God is not willing that any should perish. God wants all humans to have a happy ending. That's what propitiation is all about. The word propitiation means to bring to a happy ending. And Jesus is our propitiation. Not our good works. He is our propitiation. Does that make sense? Amen. Let's bow our heads for prayer.